We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're broadcasting from the Silencer Central studios at Silencer Central. Their experts make the buying process simple. They help you select the right suppressor for your weapon, handle the paperwork, and deliver it right to your front door. Visit silencercentral.com to find out if buying and owning a silencer is legal in your state. With only about 2,500 active duty members at any given time, your chances of meeting a real live Navy SEAL are about as good as sitting next to Elon Musk in a coach seat on your next airplane flight. Today's guest had three-decade career with the Navy SEALs, including time with the Elite SEAL Team 6. He continues to support the mission as Chief Executive Officer for the National Navy UDT SEAL Museum. He's published a book that provides insights into what life is like in the teams. It's called Frogman Stories, Life and Leadership Lessons from the SEAL Teams. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, Master Chief Boatswain's mate, U.S. Navy retired, Rick Kaiser. Hey, thank you very much. I really appreciate the, the offer to talk. Did I get that right? Master Chief? Yeah. Oh, okay. What's the abbreviation for that? Can I just call you Chief? Yeah, you can call me Rick. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Rick, a little bit about you. You joined up early on about the age of 17. Why the Navy and why the SEALs? Wow, it's a, a long time ago. Um, uh, I always had this, uh, I guess, infatuation with the with the sea. Uh, even though I grew up in Wisconsin, uh, we lived really close to Lake Michigan, and I loved being on the water, everything about the water. So I always had knew I was going to join the Navy. So I went into the recruiter's office, fully intending on joining uh, the submarine force, becoming a submariner. And uh, he had a pamphlet on his desk about Navy SEALs. And I, in 1979, um, nobody really knew about Navy SEALs other than if you were in the community or you had some tie to, you know, Norfolk, Virginia or Coronado with the Navy SEALs. So I took the pamphlet home, studied it for a couple of days, and then went back to the recruiter and said, this is what I want to be. And uh, the recruiter said, sure, because he saw me as an easy quota, right? A guy has good grades. I was in pretty good shape. Uh, he knew I would be a good uh, good candidate, so he's like, yeah, he didn't even hesitate. He's like, yeah, absolutely. And then all of a sudden, he started, uh, you know, doing some research on what it took to get somebody in the Navy who wants to be a SEAL, and involved, you know, uh, physical tests and uh, you know some mental aptitude testing. And anyway, he he saw it through, and uh, you know, next thing you know, I was in the Navy trying to go to Buds. Now, Rick, you you spent some time as a recruiter as well after you already had. You know, join the teams. Is there any ethical? I mean, as a recruiter yourself, and and I mean, if a guy like me to walk in, I mean, you have to tell you know, no way in heck, Ben. Come on, I mean, let's get. You might make a good cook. Well, you know, technically, I wasn't a recruiter. I was the main, uh, I guess, uh, field liaison. Okay, I was going through uh, boot camp and and the Navy field uh, and, and naval special warfare. So my job was just to make sure that the guys that were at boot camp had the opportunity to test and get the buds because you would be surprised how many guys uh, were, you know, stopped from, you know, trying out for SEALs by their uh, company commanders at boot camp or for whatever silly reason they, they didn't get a chance to go there. It was my job to make sure they had that chance. Okay, fair enough. Now, I tell you, 
One of my guilty pleasures is I'll go on YouTube and watch the Don Shipley Stolen Valor videos. Um, I don't know if you guys are from about the same time of in your service, but a part of that is it, it breaks my heart when you have people that had honorable service, but they had to inflate it to, well, I was a Navy SEAL or I was a super Delta CIA whatever person. Is that a sensitive subject amongst the real? Because like I said, you know, 2,500 in the world, that's a pretty small community. Can that be kind of a sensitive subject or you guys just say, hey, that's, you know, if they want to play, they can play as no skin off our back? I'll give you a two-part answer to that. So since day one of, of Navy Seals, which is 1942 in World War II, that's when the uh, the first unit, the Naval Combat Demolition Units, were formed to uh, clear beaches in Normandy for the D-Day landing. So we've only had 16,000 Navy SEALs total, and that includes all the predecessor units and everything like that. So uh, half of those, about 8,000 of them, were created in World War II. And then uh, in 1945 on, we graduate between 150 and maybe 200 a year. So when you when you look at those numbers, you're absolutely right. What you said at the beginning of the show is like weeding SEALs is, is not very common, unless you happen to be in Virginia Beach or in Coronado. So that's the first part of the answer. The second part is, since they run the Navy SEAL Museum in Fort Pierce in San Diego, we run into this problem every single day. Um, we have family members. We have uh, all sorts of people saying their dad, their son is a Navy SEAL. And uh, luckily, we have the database of every single guy that's been through training from World War II. So we can look it up real quickly. So depending on how the people treat our staff is how we treat them. So if they're, you know, kind of obnoxious and, you know, loud and we find out they're fake, we'll tell them right off the bat. If there's just some nice old lady that lost her her husband and we'll say, hey, maybe our database isn't, you know, what it's cracked up to be, we'll have to take a harder look. You know, we try to break the fall easily. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is, they were also fake, but we just try to do it nicer. Well, and yeah, being with the museum there, you've got to be ground zero for this kind of stuff, I would bet. Now, you don't mess around. I mean, you're biolicit right right up front. Bud's training class 109 in Coronado, so that should make Don Shipley happy. Easy to look up. So SEAL Team 2, if I get the dates right, uh, 1980 through 86, and SEAL Team 6, 86 to 2012. One of the things I took out from your book that I got to say, honestly, sort of surprised me. I'm kind of embarrassed about this. You talk about winter combat, and usually when a civilian like me thinks about winter combat, you know, we think about like the 10th Mountain Division or something like that. But that's also part of the SEALs' um, specialty, bag of tricks. Absolutely. So back when I was in that uh, uh, SEAL Team 2, one of our responsibilities was uh, Europe, Western Europe. So that Norway, you know, uh, Germany, Denmark, all those kind of places. And those special operations forces were experts in uh, cold weather, you know, warfare. So we would go there, you know, constantly to, you know, learn how to ski, how to live in the cold. Because the bottom line on that warfare is that uh, you can die just as easily from freezing to death as, as the enemy shooting you. So uh, you had to be you had to be good at that. And it took a lot of time, effort, and uh pain just mm-hmm. to get good at it 
Yeah, one thing I love about your book, Rick, is it's, I call it an easy read, but there's a lot of really interesting insights there and, and just some wonderful anecdotes, some funny anecdotes. Now, some of which we can't, you know, it's a family-friendly show, so we can't really get into those. That people have to buy the book and read it. But there was one story you told about the importance of when you set base camp for the night and you you, know, you got to get stay warm, get in your tent, you know, melt the, the ice for the water and stuff. But laying down your sleeping pad could be the difference between a, a miserable night and a comfortable night. And, and tell us real quickly this story, just kind of, I think the chapter was called Better Lucky Than Good, maybe. So we were uh, doing a training mission in Greenland. I, you know, there's not many Americans that can say they've been to Greenland. And um, they dropped us off at a defense early warning station. And that's basically a big radar dome that catches missiles coming from Russia across the top of the world, right? And uh, the the ski was about, from that to the coast, was about 200 miles. And uh, it was, you know, it was just us. And our gear, all alone, 10 days straight, and we just slugged it along, carrying everything that we had, you know, from sleeping bags to tents to fuel to food to weapons. Rick, let me interrupt you, because we've got to take a break, and I want to finish the story up after the break, but how deep was the snow so we get a good visual picture? It wasn't, it, it just, you know, snow is miles deep, but, uh, you know, at the surface, it's, you know, it's like six inches, you know, because it's just an ice cap. Um okay. That, you know, and we happened to be there in the summertime, so it was 24 hours of light. Never got dark, so to me, it's hard to sleep, but it also made it easy to to, uh, to move because there's always light. So we just basically slugged it out. Watch, watch, watch. Hold, hold that thought. I want to come back to this because I want to give it the right amount of time. Ladies and gentlemen, your host Ben Bueller Garcia. We're talking with Chief Rick Kaiser. We'll be right back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Ben Bueller-Garcia here in American Warrior Radio. We're talking with Master Chief Rick Kaiser. Uh, Rick is a retired Navy SEAL. He spent time with both SEAL Team 2 and the elite SEAL Team 6. He's also the executive director of the National Navy UDT SEAL Museum in Fort Pierce, Florida. Right, Rick? That's correct. In San Diego. Now, Rick, we're talking about usually recruiting posters in the movies. We see Navy SEALs tromping through the desert or the mountains of Afghanistan or in the water, but we're talking about your your winter training, and you were on a mission up there in the northern climbs, and it's getting pretty cold. You've got to pack all your gear, and just about to, when we last left our hero, you're setting, getting ready to make camp for the night. Yes, we were, and um, it just so happened that day we had extremely high winds. You're talking like 40 knot winds, so luckily it was at our, on our back, so it actually helped us move faster, but the weaker skiers uh, with the heavy packs had a harder time and they would wipe out more so we decided to you know make camp and as we were taking uh, our tents out and putting everything up uh, one of uh, one of our guys let go of his ground mat and the wind just whipped it out of there so fast nobody had a chance to, to grab it as it blew by and everybody just looked at this guy and said oh he's going to be cold tonight because if you don't have some sort of layer between yourself and the snow, it just comes right up into your body, no matter how good a sleeping bag you have. And we all got a good chuckle out of that. And about 10 minutes later, from the other direction, we see a little shape blowing towards us. And uh, as it got closer, we realized 
you got to be kidding me. It was a ground mat from, from the other direction, different brand. It wasn't the same one. It didn't go around the world. But somebody somewhere on Greenland on the other side of the slope had lost their ground mat, and it came right to the tent system that we had set up. And uh, uh, we grabbed it, and the guy got lucky. So, I mean, <laughs> he stayed warm that night, and uh, nobody would have believed that unless you were there to see it, um, but it actually happened. Well, you know, they say there, there's no atheists in foxholes. Maybe that applies to the slopes of Greenland, too. Absolutely, um, because it was totally flat. It was one of those places that there's not a single thing on the ground to look at, so you had to literally uh, constantly be looking at your compass. Back in those days, no GPS, and it probably wouldn't work there much anyway. It was it was a heck of a, a heck of an ordeal, and uh, I'm glad we did it. And you know, would I want to go back? Uh, I'd, I'd like to visit the uh, coastline. It's very beautiful. Yeah, that one of the takeaways from your book, you lessons learned, and that's what I love about about your your book, the Frogland Stories: Life and Leadership Lessons from the SEAL Teams. There's a lot of takeaways that even civilians like me can can get out of that. And one of that, if I recall, after that experience and the snow and the cold, you you decided it was best to always wait ten days after getting home before making any decisions of consequence. Yeah, when you're when you're deployed a lot, which I was, you know, like 200 days a year. Uh, it's easy to get depressed about your life and, you know, what you're missing at home or if you got family problems and, and all that. And making decisions while you're deployed is uh, the wrong thing in my mind to do because it's not real. You know what I mean? If you're on, you're on the ice cap in Greenland, don't be making decisions about your life in Virginia Beach until you get back and get settled, you know. And that I guess that those are words that I lived by throughout my whole career and it worked out. Rick, I tell you, one of the you know the whole mission of American Warrior Radio is, is particularly to educate and inform the the 99% who never served about the sacrifices that you and your comrades make on our behalf on a daily basis. And there's a training, I'll call it a training base, just north of our flagship location. And on occasion, you know, we'll read something in the papers that reminds us that what you and your comrades do is a very very dangerous business, even when people aren't shooting at you. And there's a little segment in your book where you were on a training mission where your your job was to go plant some practice items on a on a freighter and things got a little sporty. Absolutely. So just a quick side story, you know, at the Navy SEAL Museum we have a memorial and that has the names of every frogman that has died in combat and in training. Because you can't do what we do without having some fairly hazardous training going on and the closer that you make the training to actual combat the better prepared you're going to be but unfortunately that also means we lose people um so in this case when you're talking about we were doing a dive at little creek harbor back in those days it was just you and your buddy and you were tied together with a rope and uh because at night you can't see anything so if you lost your buddy you'd be gone so as we were uh, doing our dive uh getting ready to go to the ship or Heading back from the ship, in this case, I think it was, we heard started hearing a low rumbling noise, and we knew exactly what that was, and that was a big freighter coming in. And when I say big, this sucker was probably 300 feet long, and we could tell it was getting closer. We knew where we were, and we knew where it was going, and uh, we couldn't get out of the channel fast enough, and we knew the ship was coming right over the top of us, so we just said, hey, we're diving to the bottom. 
And we did that. We just started digging in with our hands to get as low into the muck and the mud, the miserable uh, harbor as you can imagine. And this thing came over the top of our heads and it was so loud, your whole body was vibrating. Finally, it passed over. And uh, as we came back to the surface, uh, we made sure we're <laughs> everybody was okay because you really can't talk down there and you can't see anything. And uh, everybody was good. I really just said my partner and I were good. And we just basically finished the uh, dive, got out of the water. And we realized that uh, my buddy's fin had actually been cut by the uh, prop as it went over the top of us. So that's how close we were to getting the chopped up. But, you know, another close call, but we made it. What is the depth of that harbor then? That's I mean, I know the displacement on a freighter is pretty pretty good, but still, dang. Yeah, you know what? I couldn't even tell you nowadays how deep that thing was, but uh, it was probably, a, you know, when you're diving uh, the rigs that we dive, it's 100% oxygen. You, you don't want to go any deeper than 20 feet for any period of time, but you can make some excursions to like 50-ish feet and still be okay as long as you're not down there too long, and that's what happens in this case. Now, Rick, Navy SEALs don't retreat and it's very rare that something happens that you say okay yeah we're just gonna go the other day we've got we got just about a minute and a half left tell us real quick the story about the uss america i found that really interesting particularly coming from a seal team six guy oh the uss america is a uh, luxury cruise liner that still holds the record this day for the fastest trip across the atlantic between you know new york and uh, england and anyway it's in it's in mothballs and we had it as a training vessel, I mean, it was perfect. It was a big ship. We could dive on it. We could train on it. We could do everything we wanted um, until we started getting into the lower decks. I mean, you're talking the thing probably had 15 or more decks. And as you got deeper, it was darker and creepier. And pretty soon we started hearing noises other than, the, you know, regular ship's noises. And as we started practicing clearing rooms throughout the ship, we became very aware that the temperature had dropped down and uh, we started seeing shadows and stuff. And, and the only reason there was shadow at all is because we had our flashlights on our weapons. And, uh, you know, shining it down the hallway as you're covering your partners as they're going into rooms, all of a sudden you would start you would see something flash across the light. You know, pretty soon everybody noticed that. And being who we were, we just said, hey, uh, maybe we should just go up to the next, go back up. <laughs> to stop, right? Nobody actually said anything about, you know, uh, hey, let's get the hell out of here, but let's, let's, let's just get out of here. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller garcia We're talking with Rick Kaiser. He's got a great book out called Frogman Stories, Life and Leadership Lessons from the SEAL Teams. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're broadcasting from the Silencer Central Studios right now. They're featuring a buy one, get one free offer while supplies last. Start by visiting silencercentral.com to find out if owning a silencer is legal in your state and then explore your options. At Silencer Central, they make silence simple. We're talking with Rick Kaiser. Rick is a former SEAL Team 2, SEAL Team 6 member. He's also the Chief Executive Officer for the National Navy UDT SEAL Museum there in Florida. I want to get down there and visit sometime, Rick, but I also uh, recommend other folks 
take a visit there. There's a lot of great stuff going on and some other programs we want to talk about later in the show. One of the other revealing things to me as a civilian, you talk about snipers, and we get these images of the the thousand-yard shot and all that stuff. And, and really what your book revealed to me is that's practicing for a thousand-yard shot is a waste of time because most of your engagements are a much shorter distance, right? That's correct. Well, SEALs operate at night. Our advantage comes from, you know, surprise and working at night with our equipment, night vision, lasers. And uh, morally and ethically, as a sniper, you got to know who and why you're shooting somebody, at least at the, in the field teams we do. And uh, you can't really see anything beyond, let's say, I'll give it 200 yards. I mean, accurately, you know, I mean, like facial features, like if you shot everybody that had your rules where everybody that you were going to shoot had a gun, everybody carries a gun in a war zone, right? So you have to know what you're doing. So, yeah, so why practice these? thousand yard shots when your average shot is really a hundred yards and you say in your book and i think this is great it's surprising but it's great you you, nor any navy seal you have ever known received rules of engagement that base said you can shoot anything that moves yes i never got that rule of engagement and we were given those types of rules before every mission you know it just became a habit you get you're trained for it you're ready for it and uh Usually they're pretty standard. You know, if you ever got one like, you know, don't shoot until you're fired upon, that was like nobody wanted that one, right? <laughs> it happened every every now and then. It's just something that you live with and you understand where it's coming from because, you know, when the investigations start coming in, if there's some something that went wrong or somebody claims that you did something that you didn't, you have to have your ducks in the room. Rick, I want to talk about two particular missions, both that were very high profile eventually. Uh, the first involved snipers, and I think that maybe three of the greatest sniper shots ever made, not necessarily because of the distance, but because of the context, and that involved the the Marisk, Alabama. Most folks might be most familiar with that from the, the movie Captain Phillips. That, I just can't imagine that. I mean, you're on a bobbing boat shooting at a target on a bobbing boat with very little visibility at not much distance, what, 50, 60, 70 yards maybe, but still. Yeah, about 70 yards. I guess the perception of it is that uh, these guys were excellent shots. They are excellent shots. That's what we do all the time. It's not like we train for uh, shooting from a ship. So you got to remember the ship that they were on, it, well, it wasn't really Bob. It's like, and it was pretty flat out there that night. It was the uh, lifeboat that was probably rolling more so. So they were actually shooting from a semi-stable platform. And when we are shooting or when we're training, it's like uh, we practice hitting moving targets all the time. That's that's part of our job. So that's all it was, was a moving target. And uh, the complexity of doing that was making sure all three of the bad guys were shot at the same time so uh, none of them could uh, shoot the captain. And you were involved in planning that mission. Absolutely. So as you get older, more wise, I like to think, uh, in the SEAL teams, your job changes and uh, mine certainly did, and uh, so I was part of the planning effort that uh, briefed the uh, senior leadership on different courses of action as the team was flying over to Somalia. Now, were you listening in or engaged in real time? I mean, that that had be quite a celebration when that they actually pulled that off the way it was supposed to go. Well, it was, uh, it was, and it wasn't right. So the, uh, the officer in charge uh, made a decision to have the snipers take the shots. But unfortunately, the uh, our senior leadership, uh, including Admiral McRaven, was not aware of that. 
decision. And so when he found out about it, he wasn't too happy. And uh, you can imagine that we all got a course correction after that uh, and make sure that never happened again. But, uh, yes, obviously the most important thing I tell people about that particular mission is that from the time the guys left Virginia Beach to the time they got back to uh, Virginia Beach was one week. So if you can think of the logistical awesomeness of the U.S. government and military, they took a full assault team, four assault craft, jumped into Somalia, saved the captain, and made it home in a week. Um, it's, it's amazing because the guys, this was an off mission for them, right? They were doing regular deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq, and this was off cycle. So that's just more time away from home, and you're already not home a lot. So it was uh, oh, just another day at the office for your guys. Yeah. I've had a number of guests on, Rick, that talk about technology and how that's really changing the battle space. Do you, I'd be curious about your opinion, are the days of the old school sniper coming to an end? Oh, yeah, I think they're gone. The You know, the days of like when they put a sniper pair in the field to go observe or to uh, maybe look for certain targets, I think that's gone because nowadays if you uh, are captured or killed, um, that's you know that's mission failure right right off right off the bat. So, and the other thing is is that you don't have to do that anymore. You have so many other assets that can have pinpoint accuracy, such as you know certain drones and and, and other uh, munitions that you don't need to have those guys. You need to uh, have them on on assault of the target for sure. But putting them out in the field all by themselves, I think that that's all that's done. And you had some. Well, a great deal of experience with this yourself, and as I guess it's sort of um, 24 hours of boredom with 20 seconds of absolute terror, or maybe. I don't know about terror, but that your your heart rate goes up real quick. I mean, that that's the one thing that, you know, drew me to snipers. I liked working in small groups. Um, I like, you know, I, somewhat I like the isolation, but it's really a mental game. You have to be able to entertain yourself and your thoughts and stay awake and stay focused on what you're doing um all for that for that very short window of, of failure or success and uh i guess I, I and all the other snipers like that kind of challenge and not a fan of the 50 caliber barrett huh no i mean it was it's okay weapon for shooting at vehicles and things but uh but if you're gonna you know well, technically, you can't shoot a 50 caliber at a person because it's a anti, like you know, logistic, logistical kind of weapon. But it's not as accurate as like a 300 Win Mag or you know nowadays with all the super weapons that they've developed in the different calibers. I mean, it's unbelievable the advances they've made in the last 10 years on sniper rifles alone. Rick, well, when we come back, I want to talk about one of my favorite stories in the book that that involve technology but not necessarily deployed on well i wouldn't think you call them the enemy and then i also also want to talk about the battle of mogadishu but ben gets a dumb question every show rick and so here's my dumb question there there have been such amazing improvements of technology with with the the laser sights and all the you know, red dots and all this other stuff and i don't know if you can answer this or not if it's classified but i assume navy seals are trained to operate just as well as much as possible with just plain old iron sights in case they have to Absolutely. I mean, that is the basic of every of every soldier, right? And, and marine, and 
airmen. You have to learn on the basics first, and then you earn your sights, and then you move on because batteries die out, lenses get cracked, uh, and if you can't shoot your iron sights, you know, you might as well not even have gone out. Outstanding. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Rick Kaiser. One of the other things that Rick's involved in, I encourage you to check out the Navy SEAL Museum. You can learn more at NavySealMuseum.org. A lot of great stuff to see there, and then also some great support programs we'll talk about when we come back. Don't forget, you can listen to this in over 500 podcast episodes at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. The most recent episodes are available on your favorite streaming platform, if that's iHeart or Pandora or Spotify, whatever it is. Please listen and share these important stories. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. It's a real pleasure to be talking with Rick Kaiser today. He's got a great book out called Frog Run Stories, Life and Leadership Lessons from the SEAL Teams. And Rick, like I said, your book is an easy read, but it's also very insightful. I mean, there's I've got three pages of, of just notes that I took as a civilian, things that I pulled out of there, and you're describing that Captain Phillips rescue and, and the Admiral, and that reminds me of one of the other chapters. The title is, you know, you got to understand the game before you get on the field. But there was one story that just really, I chuckled about it because it just, it was so, so precious. Your daughter had some friends over for a sleepover, and we know how young people can be nowadays. Take it from there and, and explain how you taught them a life lesson. So the uh, the SEAL teams all have a, like a, a technology branch that handles all our things from placing uh, transmitters, microphones, whatever. Uh, and they also had things called uh, cell phone games. I like to play practical jokes on people. So I, I brought one of those home, not intending to do it to my daughter at all, but she had a sleepover with probably about, I don't know, 10 girls. So uh, as I was watching, trying to watch TV, they all came in there and they were just talking. And, and then all of a sudden they stopped talking and they were on their phones. So they had the idea right then and there. I was like, okay, if they're going to come over for a sleepover and be on their phones, you know, this is not right you know if they should be talking to each other talking about life that's the whole reason for the sleepover so i grabbed the jammer put it in my back pocket and turned it on and slowly everybody's phone just went you know no service and then you see the, the look of panic in their eyes as to like they thought their phones were all uh you know breaking at the same time and i was just like so i fed into it and i was like i have no idea what's going on here but Maybe we should go outside. So all the girls in their pajamas all went outside on the front driveway and uh, all discussing, you know, what could have went wrong with our phones and this and that and the other thing. And uh, I turned it off. And then all of a sudden their service came back on. And then the look of relief in their face was just classic. So I, get, I let them, you know, have that serenity for about a minute. And then I turned it back on. And then, you know, it just crushed their hearts again. And it kept doing that. And so my daughter figured out that she must have known I did it somehow. She just started yelling at me, and then she started looking and checking me out. And 
she saw in my back pocket I had a little antenna hanging out, and then she knew right then, and she started yelling at me, so I, I promised her I wouldn't do it again. But uh, I think they learned a little lesson that day, and they actually did put their phones down and uh, ate and had fun and played some games. Things that young ladies are supposed to do. Mission accomplished. Well done. Now, you didn't tell Admiral McRaven about this adventure either, I'm guessing. No, not, not at all. <laughs> Rick, a little bit more of a somber. I've had a number of, of individuals that were involved in the Battle of Mogadishu, uh, more popularly known as, as Black Hawk Down, a couple of Delta folks and some Rangers and stuff. You were also embroiled in that, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but that's just, I mean, all combat is, is extremely ugly and chaotic, but it just strikes me that that situation in particular was, was pretty darn bad. You know what? I tell people about that particular battle. We, as in myself and the three other snipers from our sniper team, were there for months. So it wasn't just one day that defined our trip over there. And what I tell people about that is that we were Navy guys, right? We were four Navy guys in an Army world, and we were not that well accepted, to be honest with you. They didn't want us. They'd probably, they'd probably rather have their own teammates, and rightfully so. But it was a political move to try to integrate the Navy and the Army. And uh, so it meant when we got there, we really didn't have a job. What we did was like what all frogs have been doing for the last 80 years. We improvised, and we found ourselves missions, and we set ourselves up for success on four or five different missions, everything from classic sniper OPs out in downtown to flying a, a Eyes Over Mogadishu mission, which was uh, basically to suppress any fire coming from the town to the base, to guarding a CIA safe house. I mean, we were all over that place, and the battle just happened to be one of those days that the uh, – Enemy always has a say in what happens, and they chose that day to fight, and we gave it to them. How many comrades did you lose that day, I mean, as far as SEALs? Out of four of us, two were wounded, and two weren't. Okay. We just lost one of our teammates, Howie Wazden, to a plane crash. But other than that, the other the other guys were well, alive and well and doing great. I tell you, I do have a, a picture of, and I won't mention his name, but like I said, he was a Delta operator, and someone took a photo of him in, in the hangar after he got back from, from that mission, and just the look on his face uh, speaks speaks volumes. So I'm, I'm glad well, I'm glad you're still with us altogether, Rick, but I'm certainly glad you, you came out of that. Let's talk real quick about uh, the Navy SEAL Foundation, because it's not just a museum. Uh, you've got a number of support programs. You've got the, the Trident House Charities Program. Uh, one of my favorites, you've got a canine project. Tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, so the museum is much more than just the museum where you go and touch things, look at artifacts, which is also very cool, right? That's the whole reason we have museums. Uh, but we do have a support side for our families, and one of them is Canine Project, where we give uh, uh, canines, um, any breed, uh, maker model to, to uh, guys that need it, right? So it's a very valuable thing. But I think uh, what I really want to mention about the museum now and why it's so much more important now than just helping our than our, our own folks is that um, we are like the last bastion of education to our, our people. Everything from, you know, kindergarten through the end of college, they just don't get the education about things like Navy SEALs, honor, courage, commitment, character development, 
that they should be getting in schools nowadays. And that is what we provide. And that is what I fight so hard for to keep us going and be relevant in today's world so these, these kids have an alternative to go to and learn. Now, do you, do you have curriculum that you can send out there? I mean, folks, do they have to be in Florida to experience that? or You can go to our website. We have lots of different things going on, um, as you can imagine. Uh, we have uh, different uh, speaker series. We have, uh, you know, just historical things. Uh, you know, luckily for the kids that live here in Florida and soon in San Diego, they'll be able to come and, and actually take part in programs where they learn a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, problem solving, things like that, and and how the SEALs would do it and how it could relate to them in the future. Well, I tell you, that's that's why I encourage people to read the, your book, Frogman Stories, Life and Leadership Lessons from the SEAL Teams, because there, I got a lot of takeaways from that. And um, you and I discussed off air that I'm in a, my day job is something where <laughs> I could use all the help I can get as far as learning how to judge and, and deal with people. We've got just about two and a half minutes left, Rick. Again, folks can learn more. Visit NavySealMuseum.org. I'd like to wrap up real quick. Describe for us your swim outs. Navy Seal Museum provides a, uh, an option for families that have lost a frogman over the last year, right? So every Memorial Day, um, we have a big ceremony, um, obviously, at the museum, at our memorial. I mean, thousands of people show up for this. We have a guest speaker but the thing before the ceremony that we do is we actually swim out the ashes of our fallen. So if there's a family that uh, wants and trusts us to do it, we do it. Uh, we give them two seals, some uh, active duty, some retired, and uh, they pair up just like everything in the SEAL teams. You have a buddy system, and you take that guy's ashes, and we swim them out to sea and release them to the ocean. And then we come back and... Um, you know, talk to the family members, console them. Um, it's very emotional, as you can imagine. And it's all done on the beaches of Fort Pierce. Uh, beautiful, you know, sunrise coming up. We do it, at, you know, usually at, at sunrise. Um, and uh, it's, it's something to behold. Um, it's, like I said, it's, you have to be, have your emotions in check because uh, it's, you know, it's crying people everywhere and uh yeah you know it's just it's a it's a tough it's a tough thing but it's also one of the most worthwhile uh things that we do at the navy shield museum and very powerful and i I neglected to mention this but uh, the reason that your museum is in fort pierce is because that's where the original frogman trained that is the absolute very first uh first first place of the navy seal so the base itself naval amphibious base fort pierce is where they trained the beaches of Normandy, so the museum is, is actually where the base was. Chief, thanks for spending some time with our listeners today, and again, folks, visit NavySealMuseum.org and check out his book, Frogman Stories, Life and Leadership Lessons from the SEAL Team. It's a great read. You can enjoy it. Rick, thank you so much. Hey, thanks, Ben. No more parachuting into weddings. Folks, you'll have to read the book to get that. That's an inside joke. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Ben Bueller-Garcia. Check out AmericanWarriorRadio.com for all of our podcasts. We're also on your favorite platform. And please share these important stories with other people. Until next time, all policies and procedures are remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. 
Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.